It's good to see all of you. My name's Alan, one of the pastors here. And uh, if we haven't met, we'd love to meet you after the service today. We have a lot we're going to cover in the scriptures today. I actually don't have one singular passage that we're going to be studying together. There's going to be lots, so just kind of have your Bible ready. And of course, we'll have all of the scriptures on the screen. Um, One of the uh, things that we learned last year, a big study came out um, that helped us to see that for the first time really in the history of our country, uh, more than half of Americans do not go to church. And that's a big change that we've seen over the last several years where for many, 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 many years, always at least more than half of Americans went to church. And so obviously we're seeing this downward trend when it comes to uh, people who believe in Christ and people who go to church, at least in our country. Um, Actually, if you look globally, it's booming. Christianity is growing at an unprecedented rate, but not uh, in North America. And there's a lot of reasons that we could cite for that. Um, We're seeing a lot of our younger generations, millennials and Gen Z and such, kind of walk away from the church or ask a lot of big questions about the faith and decide that they don't want to believe in that anymore. Uh, One of the reasons you could cite for that is just the, the, the kind of hyper-communication technology age we're in. We have so many voices coming at us. We have access to so much information via our devices that it just, you know, there's so much that we have to sort through. And that's one reason that you could attach to that. But the number one reason that's cited for this is a massive uptick in the distrust of the church and distrust in institutions to be something that would help me decide what I believe or how I want to organize my life. Now, I've seen a lot of literature on this, and a lot of people in the church want to criticize this and kind of see this as just kind of a mark of immaturity, and maybe there's a little bit of that going on. But I think that a much more self-aware question that the church could be asking itself is this, what God did we introduce them to? What God did we represent to these younger generations who are now starting to ask all kinds of big questions about God? Did we teach them, show them, form them to know the God of the Bible or a different God? If biblical history, right, so if we go read the Old Testament, go read about the early church in the New Testament, if biblical history is a guide to us, if it's a lesson to us, if we can learn something from it, one of the things that we can learn is that people who claim to believe in the God of the Bible misrepresent him all the time. It's recorded all throughout the Bible, and it it happens Today And the reality is God cares very deeply about how the people who claim to believe in him represent him, represent his name and his reputation to the world. And so I just want to say, if you've struggled, if that's kind of been a part of your story, like you've struggled to believe 
in God, the God of the Bible, because there's just been some things maybe that have happened to you, or you've seen other things just in the media, or whatever it is, you've seen things, experienced things that really have disgusted you, or have caused you not to trust the church, or Christians in general, I hope that you lean in for what we're going to be talking about this morning. As you know, we're in a sermon series called What is the Bible About? Just a six-part series going cover to cover in Scripture. So obviously six parts, the entire Bible. We're talking super high-level overview of what the Bible is about. I'm just trying to give you a a large kind of meta-narrative of what the Bible is saying, the story that it's telling, so that as you engage the Bible in much more deep ways, that you kind of have an idea of where the Bible is going and where you are In the scriptures. And so this morning we're in part three of that series, which means I need to cover basically from Joshua all the way to Malachi, which is like 90% of the Old Testament. So I'll try to do that in the time that we have. But let me just orient you where we've been. Part one, we talked about creation. We were in the beginning of Genesis, and we talked about this God who created us, and why did he create us? And what was the relationship that God created us to have with him? And so what we read about is God creates humanity and we exist in this relationship with him where he cares for us, he provides for us, and he guides us, right? He, he gives us boundaries on how to live and those boundaries are all about our joy, Right? They're all about this is what's good for you. This is what's going to bring life and joy and peace. And the relationship that we had with him was he would provide that for us and we would just trust him. Trust him as our creator. In fact, the Bible says that God created us as image bearers of God. So that the way that we would live our life would actually be an image of God. That when people see us, humans, they would see an image of God. And so our whole creative purpose is to represent him. Our whole creative purpose is to reflect him in all the things that we do. But what we see in Genesis 3, right, is that this change happened. Adam and Eve, uh, Eve, when she's being deceived by the serpent, eventually just makes this decision. You know what, God, I don't think I trust you. I don't think I trust your word. I don't think I trust your boundaries. I don't think I trust you to care and provide for me. In fact, if I could have the same kind of knowledge that you have, I think I would do a better job at caring and providing for myself than trusting you with that. And so that's how we see sin come into the world and this relationship with God that's broken. Humanity now has this relationship with God. We don't trust you. And then we go into part two last week, and we went into how from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 12, God initiates a plan to restore this relationship between us and God. And he's going to do that by raising up this guy named Abraham. And Abraham is going to eventually turn into this massive nation, Israel. And out of Israel comes Jesus Christ the Son of God. And it's through Jesus 
that this relationship with God will be restored. It's not through a law. So last week we talked about why does God put the law into the scriptures, right? Exodus through Deuteronomy, and why is that there? And we learned that God doesn't rescue us. He doesn't restore that relationship through law. He restores it through Jesus. But as we jump into part three today, we're kind of moving through the rest of the Old Testament. One of the things that we're going to see is that one of the purposes of the law, this law that God gives his people, specifically in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, one of the purposes of that law was to help Israel, God's people, to live in such a way that would be good for them, and that would accurately represent God to the world. Because God cares deeply about the people who believe in this, how they represent him, how they image him, right? Image bearers of God to the world around them. So in your Bible, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is as God is giving the law to his people, Deuteronomy actually is a, is a, uh, a kind of a recap of the law. It's Moses' final message to Israel before they entered the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I want you to see what Moses says here about the law. Verse 6, he says, Keep them, the law, keep this law, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations, who... When they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you? today. God cares about how his people represent him. So he cared about how Israel would conduct themselves as a nation on the world stage. He cared about that in the Old Testament. He gives them a law. He says, this will represent me. Follow this. And he cares about this for the church. As we learned last week out of Galatians chapter 3, all of those who have faith in Christ, you now become a part of God's people. And God gives his people his word and his instructions on how to live because he cares not only for our good and our joy, but he cares about how we represent him to the world. And so we've been talking about this, that God gives boundaries. He says, hey, here's how I want you to live. This is for your good. This is for your joy. And this is so the world would know who I am. So God gives his law to his people in the Old Testament. And then, kind of so after those first five books of the Bible, starting in Joshua, they make their way into the promised land. So the promised land is this land that God gives his people to live and to be a nation and to live under the governance of God's word, under the governance of the law. And so the rest of the Old Testament, really you could say Joshua through Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, is the story of Israel living under God's word, 
or trying to live under God's word. And you could say that that story is tumultuous, to say the least. And so when you look at the Old Testament, right, you get some history books, right, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that kind of just give you the history of what's going on and the different kings and what's happening in Israel. You get some prophets, so you have these prophets that God raised up, guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and such. And these were people that God raised up to help Israel follow God's word and to remind them when they weren't following God's word, hey, like we need to return back to God's ways. So you had prophets and then you had some different books throughout there. But really the rest of the Old Testament is that story. And there were moments where Israel was doing really great and there were moments where Israel completely abandons God's words. And so one of the reasons God raised up prophets was to warn Israel, hey, you've abandoned God's word. And if you continue to do so, God is going to remove you from the promised land. He's going to send you into exile. And the reason why God is going to do that, and he eventually does, the reason why God does that is because God says, hey, I can't attach my name to your conduct. And the nations know that The people of the God of the scriptures live in this land. And so if you're going to continue to live in such a way that's opposite of what I'm about, I can't attach my name to that, so I'm going to send you out of the land. And so these prophets would come and warn God's people, hey, you're abandoning God's word. Hey, like God's going to take you out of this land. And so that's eventually what happens. God sends his people into exile. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to outline for us three indictments that God makes against Israel and reasons why God sent Israel into exile. And these three indictments are are three things that God says, I cannot attach my name to that. If you're going to live in that way, I can't be associated with it. Because the world is looking And if the world sees the way that you're living and they think that that's what the God of the Bible is about, that's not a good thing. Your role, your job, your creative purpose is to bear the image of God. And these three indictments are three ways in which Israel was not doing that. So I want to outline these three. Because God cares deeply about all of these three things. And as I outline these, if you're thinking to yourself, maybe maybe one of these is a reason that you have questioned your faith. Maybe one of these is a reason that you have questioned the church. And I hope as we go through them, two, two things. One, I actually hope that your view of God is lifted up a little bit. Sometimes we as God's people, we don't accurately represent the character of the God of the Bible. And so I hope your view of God himself is lifted up as you see God deal with his people on these things. That God takes these things seriously. And the other thing I hope for today is that all of us would be willing to examine ourselves. Because we are called to represent God. And maybe these are things that we struggle with as well. So let's do this. Let's go to the first one. 
I'm just going to do three of them real quick. There are more, but these are the three major ones I think we learn about in the Old Testament. And number one is this, idolatry. Idolatry. The first indictment that God makes against his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, is that of idolatry. So let me define that, and let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8 to define that. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are uh, their history books, their history of Israel. So we're at the very beginning of the uh, time of Israel, before there were ever kings in Israel. So before King uh, Saul, before King David, King Solomon, all of that, you had this guy named Samuel. And Samuel, we don't really have a title for Samuel. He was kind of a priest, kind of a prophet, kind of a judge in Israel, really just a man of God that God appointed to help lead Israel underneath the governance of God's word. And I want to read in 1 Samuel 8 about an interaction that Samuel has with the people of Israel about how they'll be led moving forward. So 1 Samuel 8, we're just going to read verses 4 to 9. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me for being king over them. They don't trust me to be king, Samuel. They don't trust me to lead them and guide them in the ways that would be good for them and would represent my character to the world. Verse eight, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, And serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And basically, what happens if you keep reading in 1 Samuel 8 is Samuel goes to the people of Israel and says, Okay, you want a king? If you want a king, let me tell you what's going to happen. This king is going to tax the heck out of you, and he's going to enrich himself. He's going to build himself big mansions and, you know, big fields to grow all of his crops. He's going to take all of your sons and send them to war. You sure you want this king? You want to be like all the nations and the people of Israel say, yes, that's what we want. Give us a king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They've rejected me. They don't want my leadership over them. They want to be like the rest of the world. They're looking to the other nations and how they're governed. They're looking to the other nations and the way that they conduct their business and how they're fighting these wars and conquering territory. We want to be like them. This is idolatry. That's idolatry. Looking at the world and saying, I want that, and looking at the things of God and the way that he leads us and says, I don't want that. That's idolatry at the end of the day. And so God created us, right, to have this trusting relationship of him 
where we go, okay, God, I trust you that your ways will bring me life and joy. And idolatry is actually trusting your own intuition and looking to the world and trusting them even more and saying, no, their ways are actually the pathway to life and joy. I trust them more than I trust God. I want to be like them. Reminds me of the story in Matthew 19 of the rich young ruler. So this man comes to Jesus. He's a, a Jew, and he's you know, a devout Jew, knows the scriptures, seeks to follow everything. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, what do I need to be, do to be saved? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. Now, Jesus was getting at something. And he goes, well, what commandments? And Jesus is like, I don't know, you know, honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath. And he's like, I do all of those things. What else do I lack? Jesus says, if you pick up the story in verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus isn't saying the pathway to salvation is selling all you have and giving to the poor. What Jesus went after is idolatry, right at the heart. I'm going after the one thing that you trust more than me. You don't trust that I will bring you life and joy. You trust that your riches and your money will bring life and joy. So lay those down and trust me. And the man walks away sorrowful because he cannot do that, right? This is idolatry. You trust the world more than you, you trust me. And when you trust the world more than you trust Christ, you're going to live according to the ways of the world and not according to the ways of Christ. You know, I joke with my wife a lot. We had kids pretty young. So I joke with my wife a lot that um, I am going to be an empty nester at age 46. There's a lot of life, Lord willing, after age 46. So I joke with her all the time about all the stuff we're going to do. Well, we're also a foster family. And so last week we brought in a little foster placement, a little baby boy. Now, I uh, fully expect this little baby boy not to be with us very long. Right? The goal of foster care is to reunite the child to his parents. And if not then, then hopefully an extended family member. So that's our goal. That's what we're working for. And, and that's what we hope happens with this little boy. But we always go into foster care knowing that if that's not possible, then we're open to adoption. And so I was joking with her. Oh, man, I might have just pushed back my empty nester date by 10 years, a decade. That's a lot of time. But you know what's fascinating? It's fascinating how so many of us have a life vision beyond this moment right now. Stuff that we're working for, stuff that we're dreaming for, stuff that we hope we get to do. And we're orienting so much of our life. We're making so many decisions, so many financial decisions and everything, ways that we're spending our time, all because we're seeking that one goal. And I wonder how many of us got that life vision from what the world says is what's good and right and beautiful and joyful versus what God has said. I do that. I've done that. I dream of that. Oh man, this like life of being able, like hopefully I've built up wealth and, and then I can just go and enjoy it. And well, that's what the world said should be your life vision. 
And we got to be really, really careful because what if Jesus one day comes to us and says, will you lay that down and follow me? And will that be the straw that breaks the camel's back? And we go, oof, yeah, actually, my real trust is there and not in you. And so it just causes us to pause and go, oh, do I fully trust in Christ? Because a full trust in Christ will mean to live according to his ways. Because I trust his ways. That they're good and they're right. And that's when we step into this life of representing God to the world. Idolatry. And God looked at Israel and he saw a nation that started to follow other gods. They started to adopt the practices of other nations. And he goes, I can't attach my name to that because that would be attaching my name to evil. Idolatry. This is the first indictment that we see in the Old Testament. The second one is this, injustice. Injustice. Two hard scriptures I want to read. Let's start in Amos. Amos is a little minor prophet, one of the first prophets to prophesy in Israel. Amos chapter two, verses six to eight says this. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals, slavery. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, sexual abuse and exploitation. Corrupting my holy name. I can't be associated with this. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines, unjust employment practices, greed. God is looking at the injustice of Israel and he indicts this time and time again. Almost every book of the Old Testament has something of God going after the injustice in Israel. But it's not just the injustice that's happening within Israel. It's something else as well. Let's go to Isaiah chapter one, verses 12 to 17. God says, when you come to worship me, you, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. Oh, I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. I mean, this is God saying, I see a people, and man, you're so good on Sunday morning. You show up, 
to the gatherings, you're raising your hands in worship, you're singing passionately, you're taking notes in your Bible and you're underlining stuff and circling stuff and you show up to small group and you do all of these things and God's saying, it's a burden to me because when I watch you live your life, I see you do not care for the oppressed and the poor and the orphan and the widow. And so Isaiah 1 is interesting because it's not just the injustice happening within Israel. It's also the fact that Israel is not actively fighting injustice when they see it happen. Like God doesn't want his people to be like, well, I'm not the one who did it, so it's not my problem. No, he goes, God's people, the people who represent the God of the Bible go, I see injustice. Yeah, it's not my, it's my problem. That doesn't happen in my God's creation. I'm moving towards it. I'm fighting it. I'm not washing my hands of it. And God's saying, I don't want, I don't want your spiritual activity if you're not gonna be a people of justice. This is one of the more stronger um, points in, especially the Old Testament, also the New Testament, where God is so clear. I, I want my people to be a people who care for the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the vulnerable. And when injustice is happening, I want them to move towards it, not away from it. And God says, I can't be associated with you if you don't do that. Not in my creation. And it's the same for the church today. Right? This is not a debatable topic. It's not a confusing topic in Scripture. The reality is, is that Jesus Christ comes for us when we have sinned against him, right? In our need, in our evil ways, and when we are broken down and we are suffering under the consequences of our sin and the sin of others, we have a God who moves into that, he breaks into this world, and he rescues us from it, and he now sends out his people to do the same work, moving towards the needy and oppressed, just like he did for us. It's the same for the church today. And I have seen many people walk away from the church, especially over the last decade, because the church overthinks and over-theologizes this topic. We are at our worst when we are having political and ideological debates over justice. At our worst. And when a world looks upon that happening within the church internally, they go, whew, I don't know if I wanna worship that God. But when that's happening, we're not representing the God of the Bible. It's some other God that we're inviting people to worship. It's not this one. If we read the Bible with clear eyes and what God calls us to, he calls us to be a people who fight for justice, who go after the oppressed and the poor and the needy. That's the second indictment in justice. And the third indictment we see here is spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. Another strong passage, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> God says this, then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, the pastors, the spiritual leaders, 
So when you see shepherd, just think the spiritual leaders, the synagogue rulers, the, the, those who taught the scriptures. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you, shepherds, who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Should shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. God's like, I'm not gonna attach my name to harsh shepherds. And so my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd and they are easy prey for any wild animals. They've wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every wild animal. And though you were my shepherds, you didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and left the sheep to starve. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I now consider these shepherds my enemies. And I will hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock. And I will stop them from feeding themselves. And I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. That is sobering words from Ezekiel. The reality is spiritual leadership, teaching, pastoring, what I'm doing right now is a position of power. It's a position of power. I have right now an ability to influence. I have an ability to bind your conscience to something, to make you feel something, to read from this word and to teach it, describe it in such a way that might influence you. It's a position of power. You might hear my words, and because you trust me, hopefully, you might think, okay, this is what God is saying. That's sobering. And we have watched many, especially in the church today, abuse their power, use their influence for their own gain, use their influence to build platforms, to enrich themselves, to do the very thing that we see here in Ezekiel. And the world sees it. The world sees spiritual leaders enrich themselves by amassing massive followings, using the word of God to teach people and influence them where they want to go. And they're like, I'm not going to sign up for that dog and pony show. Like, that's ridiculous. Now, what I'm thankful for of this being in Ezekiel 34 is that it does show us whenever there are positions of power in a broken, sinful world, there's going to be humans that abuse that. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. But there are a couple of things that I want to talk to you about when it comes to being underneath a shepherd, as God calls us to be, and yet being careful when it comes to spiritual abuse. Two things. Number one is this. Do not entrust the care of your soul to someone you don't know. I've preached on this before, especially out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But I don't believe that we should entrust the care of our soul to someone we don't know. 
I believe that shepherding requires relational proximity. So that you can be like, yep, I know that person who's teaching and I know their heart and I know their motives. There's relational proximity so you can build trust and there's relational proximity so that your shepherd knows how to shepherd you well. And I believe we're in an era right now where many of us entrust the care of our soul to people on YouTube and podcasts. We entrust the care of our soul to personalities who have these massive followings that will never get to know them. And they can be great resources because they can be some fantastic teachers, but do not entrust the care of your soul to someone you do not know. And the second thing is this, expect structural accountability for your leaders. Expect that, demand that. Structural accountability for your leaders. Do not allow yourself to be cared for by someone who gets all of the power in a church or a context by themselves and whatever they say goes and there's no structural check on that. So here at Grace Hill Church, yes, I do preach the most, but I do not have authority all to myself. My elder or the elders of this church could sit me down whenever they want. We have structural accountability. We have plurality of elders. We have parity. We have systems to make sure that not one person gets whatever they want or not one person can grab power or take authority, right? They will tell you, I don't get everything that I want. Expect that from your leaders. Don't just take their word for it because there's not one person, not even me and not even any of our elders at this church who are above spiritual abuse. We're capable of it. God saw that in Israel, and he said, I can't attach my name to this. And so as we walk through the Old Testament, we see this story of Israel, and we see this story of Israel, and what they're doing is they are abandoning the word of God. And they're saying, God, we, we trust the world, we trust ourselves more than we trust you. When their very call was to represent God to the world. Idolatry, injustice, and spiritual abuse. Three indictments against Israel. It happened in Israel, and it's the same for the church today. We see it in the church today. And we have the same calling in the church today. And that calling is to represent God to this world. And to trust God that his word to us is good and right, even when it challenges us that our creator has given us something that's gonna lead us to life and also represent his character to the world. And so what this means, if that's our calling, just like Israel's calling, what that means is that we need to be a people of repentance. And by repentance, I mean a people who are willing to self-examine, a people who are not surprised that we might mess up, right? A, A people with really low ego, And the humility to be like, yep, totally capable of straying from God's word. And so I want to be a person of repentance. But here's where everything we talked about last week is so important and so key. Is that because we are not saved by the law, because we are not saved by our behavior, we are not saved through our performance, we are not saved through perfectly representing God. That's not how we're saved. We are saved solely through Jesus Christ, placing our trust on Jesus who got rid of our sin on the cross, who gave us his righteousness. He is the one who makes us right with God, restores that relationship. Because we're saved that way and not saved through the law, 
God is a really safe person to repent to. See, oftentimes the reason why our ego is way up and we're not willing to admit when we're wrong is because we don't want to deal with the relational fallout that's going to come when we admit we're wrong. If I admit I messed up, people will leave. God will leave. I will be left alone. And so what happens is instead we get egos, giant egos that push people away. But that's not how it works with God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one we are saved through Jesus and he wants to lead and guide us to life and peace. And so he's perfectly safe to repent to because he will not leave us or forsake us. He'll say, my grace will cover that. And let's go. I I began a new work in you and I'm gonna be faithful to complete that. Let's go. I'm going to grow you and mold you and shape you because I know what's best for you. And I want life and joy and peace for you. And here is what displays the God of the Bible to the world. It's when the church becomes a people where not only do we believe that God is a safe person to repent to, but we become a safe place to repent to each other. Where this becomes a place where we can struggle, we can admit when we're, when we're having a hard time believing in God, we can confess our sin, We're not worried about relational fallout or awkwardness. But we lean in, we remind each other of the grace of God, we don't leave, and we help each other as we seek to follow Jesus and show his goodness and righteousness to the world around us. God absolutely gives us boundaries. He gives us a way that he wants us to live. It's because he's good It's because he knows us better than anybody else knows us. He's the creator of the place. He knows how it works. And he gives us boundaries. And yes, there's gonna be times where those boundaries kind of rub up against what we want or what we think might be good. Question is, do we trust Jesus, the one who rescued us and who's leading us to life? And are we willing to be a people of repentance? You stand before God and say, God, because I know you will never leave me, I want to be honest with what I'm struggling with because I want to represent you to the world around me. I want them to look upon the church and see something beautiful, not something repulsive. Let's pray that God would help us with that. God, we're just so thankful for your word. And even I confess, God, there are many times your word is hard to follow. Sometimes I have a hard time understanding some of your commands. But God, the longer that I follow you, the more that I realize that I am not wiser than you are. I am not more knowledgeable than you are. And that your ways are always good. And your commands are always for our joy. And we're thankful for Jesus that he came to save us. And we're thankful that we are not saved by our ability to follow this word, but that you sent Jesus to save us, to rescue us, and to walk with us as you complete this new work inside of us. And so I just pray we would be a church, we would be a people who would lean into your grace. We would be a people who would be 
free to admit when we're struggling or we're wrong. And that we would know that we are covered by your grace, that you're not gonna leave or forsake us and that you will work with us, walk with us as we seek to follow you. And Lord, help us to be a place that does that for one another. Help us to be a place that can, that can carry burdens for one another. Most of all, God, I just pray that we would be a church that represents you well and your character and your goodness and your righteousness. So that we would display a God who is beautiful to this world. We ask that you would help us in Christ's name.